Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. We'll start with Exhibit C. Not too much to add from last week. That surplus capacity in the 2024 column is really more than 4 million barrels, I think. I'm still looking for decent data to update the 24 forecast, but I think it's a better part of 5 million barrels. And for anyone expecting oil to stay in its current range, that's really something to be nervous about. It's not that the demand is disappointing. What's disappointing is the extra supply. So the U.S., rather than being 12.7 and 24, the last month or so, it's been running over 13 million barrels a day. And and I think we go down these these columns at the 102.6 estimate for production of all liquids is too low. I think it's half a million or three quarters of a million barrels higher. So that's a little bit of a problem. Exhibit B is a big problem. And that is, and here I probably sound like a broken record from each Wednesday, but that production, that dry gas production of 102 in, or 101.8 in 23, the year is almost finished. So that's an accurate number. The problem is with the one, the 24 forecast of 104, it's also, it's already running 104 in the fourth quarter. So if that continues to increase, that's not good. Here again, the demand is okay. LNG feed gas is going up by about 2 billion cubic feet per day per year. And, and we're getting a bit of a lift from power going up, but supply is overwhelming the demand. So if you look down at the 1214, the last Thursday prices, the January contract is down to 235. I mean, it's been a long time. I mean, gas is very cyclical. It's been a long time since the January price was that low. And you can see the 24 price which at the beginning of 23 was four dollars is now 260 and the 25 price is 340. again it's supply not demand driven everyone says too much warm weather the heating degree days are actually not bad this episode of telltales is brought to you by top mark capital if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative emerging manager visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more This is not an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. And now, back to the show. Exhibit A, I said last Wednesday, and I'll repeat today, and I'll probably repeat next Wednesday, I think we may have reached a turning point in spending. I think when we went through COVID, if you look at that all other line, that's everything other than mandatory programs, Social Security, Medicare, and interest in defense, went from $910 billion in 2019 during the two COVID years. It got up almost to $3 billion. 
and then it declined to 1.9 and 22 and 1.4 and 23. It just didn't come down fast enough. But I think what you see in the House and Senate taking quite a lot of time to approve a special supplement for Ukraine and, and Israel, I think the direction has changed. I think the people we've elected to the Senate, we all 320 million of us have elected the Senate and the House, have decided spending less is the right is the right answer. And that's good because otherwise these deficits are just not sustainable. I'm going to go to page one here and Interest rates have come down a lot, and the 10-year bond is getting up close to five, and now it's 3.8. And a lot of people thought that with the U.S. government running big deficits and with quantitative tightening, which is the Federal Reserve is bringing its balance sheet down about a trillion dollars a year, there would be a question about U.S. sovereign credit. In fact, Moody's said that they're considering a downgrade. S&P, quite a few years ago, removed the AAA rating down to AA. <laughs> and I have a commentary on page one. If you just wanted to make sure that you had no credit risk, would you rather own debt of Apple or you rather own debt of the U.S. government? And I think <laughs> Apple is in a much better cash flow position. It generates more cash than it uses. It's been a while since the U.S. government was able to do that. Um, but with that as a uh, as a commentary, I just see if Mike has anything to add. Well, it's an interesting exercise. Apple may not be able to literally print money, but they've been pretty successful in accumulating it over the years. Um, with every new technological change, there's also an opportunity to maybe displace the incumbent. In this case. It's Apple and the, the cell phone. If the cell phone were no longer the center of a person's ecosystem, um, maybe Apple's moat would be at risk. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think given the way these technologies are being applied, it's likely to mostly further entrench Apple's position. So with that in mind, I do. I, you may prefer to own uh, Apple credit over, over U.S. government credit. My vote would be for Apple. To go into, um, is our iPhone or, or our Samsung equivalent going to cease being how we do most of the communication with the internet? Alphabet has a phone. I guess they have a language model, very, you know, less, like, you know, very less involved language model, much smaller language model that runs on their phone. I've, I've asked Mike almost every morning since last Wednesday, is this a trend? In other words, is, is AI and language models going to be something that <clears throat> runs on our handheld devices or are handheld devices just going to be a portal to these programs running on the cloud? For example, if you to turn the page to page two, if you're renting Microsoft's Copilot for use, uh, you may be using it with your iPhone or your handheld device, but it's running off the cloud. And I think, 
I'm going to give you what I think Michael's answer is going to be. I think if Jason were on it, the answer, and that is the Alphabet product is interesting, but pretty limited in capability. So it's much more likely that our iPhones or our desktops or our portable machines are going to be the portal to accessing the cloud. So that now, where does this make a difference? Well, it it makes a difference, I think, in in demand for GPUs. Uh, it probably makes a difference in terms of how much capital spending Microsoft and Amazon and and Oracle and Google have to do to keep building data center capacity. But with that, I'm going to turn it over to Michael to uh, straighten out any misstatements I may have made or omissions. I think the ultimate answer to your question, which is, you know, are we going to be using these models at the edge or in the cloud? The answer is yes. Yes, we will be doing both. The current state of the small models that are capable of running on a phone isn't spectacular by any means. Those models typically are underperformant versus what we're used to if you're using any of the large language models. That being said, the capabilities of these models are increasing in an exponential fashion, and so they will get better over time. You'll find that the smaller models may do some tasks satisfactorily now. Maybe that's not a lot of tasks. But in one year's time and five years' time, you'll see more and more things that are more than good enough. And that workload will shift down to the phone. So I'll give you an example. If a a software developer is writing an application and say that application could either process queries through a large language model in the cloud and say those queries cost you know, three cents a piece or five cents a piece. You you could see a world where the decision set for that developer is very different if they can move that query to the phone where it runs locally because the marginal cost for that query is zero once it's on an existing piece of hardware that the customer has. So it's in everybody's interest, certainly if you're... Um, Apple uh, to get more compute on the edge device because that will drive more purchases of apps that utilize the hardware on the phone. The extended question of that for both Apple and Google is how, how do you monetize it? And there's some, you know, handful of theories as to how they're going to. And one idea is that Apple will have some sort of AI store, a way to be compensated, whether it's from the developer within the apps or something directly to the consumer um, as a way to maybe augment the Siri function on the iPhone and similarly on the Google phones. So, you know, we can hypothesize all day the way they're going to do it, but the concept is there is a revenue opportunity there and it'll be interesting to see how these companies approach it. That is a great answer, both. That is a great answer. I think we want to try to move through more of the pages and leave at least 10 minutes or so for healthcare. On the chip front, just want to mention something that I was surprised at. I'm not even sure how reliable it is, but 
was a report from one of the news sources this morning that chief uh, leader in China during his meetings with Biden and his staff in San Francisco back a few weeks ago said that some type of unification of Taiwan and China was a strong priority for them and that the timing of doing that was up to China. Taiwan is holding elections. The Chinese Communist Party has been very clear that they don't like the front runner. The front runner is the current vice president of Taiwan. He's very, very much in favor of, of Taiwan being very independent of China. When we look at page three, if there was some type of you know, move by China, all these five companies get impacted. Obviously, Taiwan Semiconductor, based in Taiwan, gets impacted. ASML making the topography machines that enable making, you know, continuing to build better, more, more productive, more powerful chips. Intel, who's kind of led the charge towards having capacity in this country, although TSMC has a very large facility going in in Arizona. Both AMD and NVIDIA, very dependent on Taiwan Semiconductor making their chips. So anyone owning these companies shouldn't run in the other direction if this starts to become publicized more, because it's it's a risk. But I don't know that it it's a risk that's big enough to change you know, a successful investment, to come out of a successful investment. But if it's true that Chinese are very outspoken, that definitely will get more of a hearing in, in the news. And I think Michael and I talked about it this morning. I think Michael agrees if you're a happy TSMC stockholder or happy NVIDIA stockholder or a happy ASML stockholder, you don't do anything precipitous, but it's definitely something to continue to watch. Yeah, I, I, don't, disagree, I don't disagree with that. I mean, we do have a what you would call a research position in Taiwan Semiconductor. And, I, you know, there's many directions unification could take place. It could be a very peaceful unification. It could come with support from the U.S. government. It could come with concessions on many of the things that we're looking for from China as far as uh, you know, IP infringement issues, all of that kind of stuff that we, we've had issues with in the past. So if there was a unification, there's an opportunity for diplomacy as well. If it were a hostile one, that would be much more significant of a problem. But I don't think anybody's first choice would for there be a, a hostile type of a uh, uh, unification. Yep. Just moving on to page four. Some of the Magnificent Seven, I mean, obviously Apple has a lot of exposure in China, video since everything's made in Taiwan as exposure. But Amazon on page four is pretty clear, not too exposed in China. And 
that's also that's also true of Google or Alphabet. I mean, the search engine in China is Baidu. Alphabet early in its or Google or its existence decided to exit China. So, in looking at the seven companies, kind of carry the S and P. There are ones that have less China exposure. One thing that it'll be fun to watch over the next week or two when there's a lot of sports available to watch is if you take Netflix, which doesn't do too much sports. Disney, which has ABC and will stream, and then Comcast, which is the next page, which has NBC, Peacock, which does stream. But it was interesting. While we're on Amazon, one of the pieces of news this weekend is there is a cable channel company that's teetering on bankruptcy that has a lot of rights to a lot of NBA and NHL games and. Amazon is negotiating with them to, I think, pay in advance for those games. Mike has consistently said that, that, and Jason as well, that to, to be successful in streaming, you will have to develop a position in live sports. And we'll draw Mike out a little bit on this. In addition to Netflix and Disney and Amazon, Mike put in. Would it, Mike and Jason would include Google because of their capability there. With a lot of sports scheduled over the next couple of weeks, uh, it will be interesting to see how all these participants in trying to uh, develop a dominant streaming business uh, handle uh, handle live sports. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that Amazon deal is really interesting because the regional sports networks in general got really uh, over leveraged, I guess. And they're now all in fairly precarious positions, which puts, which actually makes it a very opportunistic move by Amazon to try to scoop up some of the rights to stream these because streaming was never really the intent of those relationships. But they may be able to end around an eventual negotiation with the NBA um, and other regional sports leagues to get some of this onto streaming. So, yeah, I think it's exciting. I do think Netflix should do some of this. I, I, I don't remember if we talked about it last week, but there's an exhibitional tennis match that will be on Netflix. So we're going to see more of this, and I think it will be, in the end, pretty good for consumers and for the uh, sports leagues as well. We got some things for next Wednesday on page five and six involving how the cable companies and AT&T and Verizon T-Mobile fit together. We, we, we may spend some time on payments next Wednesday, MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal. We will certainly, because it's a time of year, we will certainly spend some time next Wednesday on retail. We're kind of skipping over the energy pages, but except to complain about the price of natural gas and the price of oil, I'd like to get us uh, all the way back to the healthcare page or what we call that. There's some other health companies, but on page 15, I think over this period, I'm I'm gonna the next time you see page 15 updated for the nine months results, Lily's gonna be in place of Pfizer. Pfizer was here because of COVID, but we have Moderna and BioNTech 
were trying to, you know, use the cash they piled up during COVID to uh, come forth with cancer vaccines and whatnot. And I think Lilly, with their drug to reduce appetite, is more interesting than Pfizer. Mike and Jason own and follow Lantheus and Vertex Pharmaceutical, both of whom have news almost every week. So maybe for the for the five minutes or so that close this out, maybe we focus in on Lantheus and Vertex, maybe Lantheus first. Yeah, Lantheus has some pretty um, large news and actually had a pretty negative stock movement on it. So I think it's important that we cover that. The the trial that they have in place for PNT2002, which is the point bio Lantheus treatment for prostate cancer. They released interim results that were generally in line with our expectations. The reason the market got really excited about these results and probably why the reaction was relatively negative is that point bio had been, or, uh, is being acquired by Lilly. They had done a tender offer and not all of the shares had been um, tendered, not enough of the shares. So, so a handful of hedge funds basically said, well, wait a second, let's see what the results of the trial are first. And the, and the share price went up above the tender offer price. So it got everyone excited that maybe these results would be completely blowout and the, the point bio shareholders didn't want to get um, you know, let the company go for less than it was worth. The results came out and were generally in line with expectations and similar to those of the competitive product that's on the market uh, called Pluvicto. It's a Novartis product. The Novartis product got a fast-track designation for a more narrow uh, use case. Uh, and, and what Lantheus and Point Bio are going for with the splash study is a much broader indication. Both companies are going for this broader in- indication. And the advantage for both companies is that the usage of Lantheus's um, Pilarify, the diagnostic to determine if a person has and where it is prostate cancer, um, will go up and the market will expand regardless of which one goes forward. So we actually think the sell-off opportunity is a, or sell-off event is kind of a good opportunity to enter as the current multiple on, on forward earnings is, is it's below 10, we believe. Um, so, and that's just 12 month forward earnings. So it's, it's, uh, it, you know, again, the market moves in somewhat irrational ways sometimes. And we think this is, this is one where it's kind of a heads I win tails you lose because of the, uh, diagnostic. No, it's good. The neat thing about Lantheus and Vertex Pharmaceutical, if you compare them to Moderna and BioNTech, BioNTech has a great deal of cash piled up, you know, like that are part of $20 billion. And Moderna has about $9 billion of cash piled up. But with COVID vaccine less less in demand, uh, they, they will not continue to run free cash flow. Whereas Lantheus and Vertex have really interesting products coming along but they're also running free cash flow. And Vertex Pharmaceutical, especially, it's a company I just wasn't aware of. And if you look at page 15, and I think when this is updated to nine months, the free cash flow will be more. I mean, it's it's a 
you know, over $3 billion of free cash flow and has a pretty significant cash pile, has about $10 billion of cash on hand. Vertex Pharmaceutical has a, you know, a medicine that's been approved that basically out of science fiction in terms of modifying the, the genes and whatnot. And that's for sickle cell disease. The problem I have with that is this treatment is going to cost $2 million per case, just seems impossibly expensive. On the other hand, with Vertex Pharmaceutical, as Mike will, will finish up by 30 minutes, has this pain medicine, which, you know, is not going to be cheap, but will be a huge advantage over opioids. And now the question is, I think, does it have side effects? I mean, people have tried to get this kind of medicine through through the FDA uh, approval process in the past. But Mike, if uh, just to finish up, if you could give an assessment of, of where 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 they stand on on getting through a phase three with that with that uh, pain medication. Sure. So so the the long and the short of the opioid non opioid. Uh, painkillers is basically everybody wants alternatives to op- opioids. Um, there, there have not been many that have made it through trials and have worked well. The trial data that we have so far on Vertex is extremely promising. And the go-to-market for Vertex is to get it in wherever they can get through trials the fastest. We should expect phase three data um, next year from Vertex, so potentially revenue in the back half of the year, assuming it's approved. And the exciting thing about that is the additional cost differential between opioids and whatever a non-opioid treatment is, the government's willing to fund the Delta. So for the um, monetary prize is significant, and I think we've estimated a 3 to $5 billion market for Vertex should this um, be broadly adopted. Great. More or less finishing on time, and uh, we'll we'll be back on next Wednesday. In the meantime, everyone have a a uh, a good period over the next weekend with Christmas, and stay healthy and be well. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder. Nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, Neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.